Well, we're all getting settled down. Just a review of announcements. Everybody ought to have a pretty good idea. I hope everybody has signed up on the uh, emergency notification sheet out in the fellowship hall. Daylight savings time begins Saturday night, so don't forget to set your clocks back an hour and pick up an extra hour of sleep. Information about the Samaritan Purse is out in the fellowship hall. Also, the conference... Yeah, the conference at uh, Hoffmantown Baptist Church is this November 4th and 5th, and it's going to be live-streamed and recorded. Alan, would you bring one of those up to me, please? Yeah. Yeah, bring me one, please. And then um, um, it's going to be live-streamed. So I, there was a thing I posted the other day on my on my Facebook page that was the announcement they emailed out, and it had didn't say they were live streaming. It just said things would be available eventually on their website. But I did get confirmation for thank you for the second time that um, that it is going to be live streamed. So that information is on the Dean Bible Ministries uh, website. Also, Christmas lunch, uh, December 11th, and communion on Christmas. Uh, Christmas Day. So one other thing for you to have in prayer, uh, there's a profit and loss statement, financial statement for the church that covers the first three quarters, January through the end of September. And uh, as of the end of September, um, we have, are running a deficit of $26,835 for the church and about 40, approximately, what, 4500 uh, for Dean Bible Ministries, deficit of 4500 for DBM. So please keep uh, those things as a matter of prayer. What? Hmm? 1700 I com- Then I completely misread that thing you sent me today. Okay. 1700 My mistake. Okay. Um How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started in our study this evening, we'll have a few moments where we can make sure that we're prepared to uh, study the Word, to walk with the Lord, and continue our walk by the Holy Spirit. Scripture says when we sin, we're no longer walking in rapport with the Lord. We're walking according to the sin nature, so we need to confess sin. And when we do that, we are restored uh, to fellowship. And we continue to walk with the Spirit. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will, I will open in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening to study your word, to be reminded of your faithfulness, that you are a God who will accomplish what you intend to accomplish in history, and that no matter what forces of evil are arrayed against your plan, even though at times it looks as if things are pretty dark, we know that you will bring about that which you have planned to bring about, and that the end game is that you are victorious. Father, we pray for our nation in this last week before the election next week. We pray that you will continue to allow information to come forth that will awaken people to uh, the realities of, of the candidates and especially the criminality on one side. And, Father, we pray that you would expose those who would seek to do evil into this nation. And by evil, I mean to go against the original intent of the Constitution. Father, we pray that you would awaken people spiritually in this country because a return to the Constitution is only a minimal solution. The real solution is a return to the Word of God and to a a focus upon biblical truth at every level of our culture. And therein lies the only real hope. Father, as we study tonight, we're reminded that uh, no matter how difficult things looked for David, no matter how dark things looked, you were protecting him and providing for him, and you do the same thing for each and every one of us, and that we can be confident that you are the one who has secured us in our salvation, and you are protecting us day to day in our spiritual lives. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 19. 1 Samuel chapter 19, and let me say by way of introduction that when we get to the end of this chapter, in my opinion, this is one of the strangest episodes in the Scripture. And, um, and you know, some people may think that a talking serpent in Genesis chapter 3 is pretty strange. Other people may think of uh, Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt is pretty strange. Other people may think of, uh, of uh, three uh, <clears throat> Israelite young men surviving a flaming furnace is pretty strange, but this gets really strange. And it's because we just don't know enough information, and that's true about several things that are going on in the Old Testament, that we're told what was happening, but some of these details are a little bit beyond uh, our understanding because we just don't have all the facts. So we're going to be looking at this 19th chapter, and the focal point here is that David continues to come under assault by Saul, either directly or indirectly. And the as he uh, lives his life, he has to deal with the fact that his father-in-law uh, has a murderous rage against him that comes on him at times. And he knows that on the one hand, he can't do anything against Saul because Saul has a unique position among all authorities in in the in history, and that is that he is the Lord's anointed king over God's cho- chosen people. And Saul's murderous rage seems to be only directed against David, um, at this point, and so we are going to understand some things about how God protects David and how we can respond in circumstances when people seek us 
uh, ill and would seek to harm us either by destroying our reputation or by personally attacking us, slandering us, uh, people calling us names, people doing uh, things that seek to to harm us and to hurt us. And sometimes these are people we know, people we love, people in our family, uh, and we have to come to understand how we as believers are to respond to those who uh, would seek to destroy us. Jesus captures this in the Sermon on the Mount, that we are to love our enemies. And that doesn't mean that we become doormats or that we just uh, uh, walk in front of them bare-chested so they can bury the hatchet deep into our chest. Uh, That is not the picture that we see in Scripture. We are to use wisdom, and we are to deal with the opposing forces in terms of grace and humility, but not in terms of stupid vulnerability. And often what happens is when you say to people that you need to respond to them in kindness, what they hear is, I need to do something really stupid and let that person do damage to me. And that's like, that, that, that's a non sequitur. And, uh, but I've heard that from people in, in uh, 35 years of pastoral ministry, that if you tell some people you need to submit to authority, that what they hear is that you need to be run over by their tank. And that just isn't what the scripture says. But unfortunately, that's what happened. I was, I was thinking about this the other day. I was very fortunate to grow up in a home that really taught authority orientation the way it should be taught. And when I would uh, say things that I shouldn't say about some teacher, or uh, I remember when I was in high school, I got a job working for one of the, uh, one of the food teams out at, um, out at the Astrodome and had to work for somebody who was a real jerk, and I would come home and say certain things, we would have a discussion about how you were to have respect for authority, even if the person in authority was not worthy of respect. That doesn't mean that you have to agree with them or that you have to put yourself in a a dangerous position, but that they are a person in authority and you have to respect them. So we see a picture of this, in this episode, we've been talking in First Peter on Thursday nights about submitting to authority, and we've talked some about civil disobedience in different areas, and we see an example of this because, uh, as I pointed out in the Peter series, what you get is people, who, when you, they hear submit to the authority that is said over you, what they hear is, I can't question it. I can't offer another alternative. And that's not the biblical example. The biblical example is from from Daniel, uh, both in uh, in Daniel chapter 1 specifically, but also in terms of what the uh, three uh, young Israelite men did, is that they recognized that there were, they tried to set up alternatives. And when when it came to the fiery furnace, there really wasn't an alternative but David showed wisdom, I mean, Daniel showed wisdom to come up with an alternative. So let's begin to look at, at the text. Just a reminder, in terms of the structure, it's all about how God is bringing David to the throne of Israel. He anointed David in 1 Samuel 16, to 13 That was a private ceremony with uh, Samuel and the family. Then God promoted David. David did not seek promotion for himself. God promoted him and brought him to uh, within the circles of Saul and uh, uh, the royal family. 
God then gave uh, victory to David over Goliath in chapter 17. And then in this section, from the end of 17 through uh, the end of chapter 20, we see how God is protecting David from Saul. And then David will leave and go into, as it were, exile from the court uh, through the rest of the of the chapter. And in chapter 18, we saw that God is with David. And then in this chapter, we're showing the emphasis is on God providing protection for David uh, through Saul's family at the beginning and then through divine intervention uh, through the Holy Spirit at the end of the chapter. So let's just look at the first three verses. There we read, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you, therefore please be on your guard until morning, and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe I will tell you. Now there are a lot of circumstances that that can be related to this. As I was reading it, one came to my mind that... Um, that I had not thought of earlier, and that is the role of the Gentiles, the righteous among the Gentiles in Nazi Germany who risked their lives and their property and their families in order to hide Jews. We know the story of the diary of Anne Frank and the Frank family, and if you have um, I've had the opportunity to read a book called The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. Uh, that is a tremendous story it was written and first came out back in the uh, back in the 70s and they made a film about it and Corey Tim Boom was played by an actress from Houston who's the founder of a Christian theatric group here that has always done an excellent job called the AD Players and Jeanette Cliff George played uh, Corey Tim Boom and it was a uh, theatrical release and it's a it's a tremendous film if you've never seen it I highly recommend uh, watching it. It's a true story about a family of believers who risked everything in order to protect and hide, uh, hide Jews. And so they are, in effect, doing what some people, we, what we call civil disobedience. They're disobeying the authority because the authority was wrong. That's the kind of thing we see, uh, we see here with, with Jonathan. It's an example of disobedience to, to Saul's authority because the command from Saul is a direct violation of a divine command. Saul gets, as we see the beginning here, he gets his family together, and uh, Jonathan, his son, and all of his servants, and this would indicate all of his top officials. Uh, these, these aren't household servants. These are those who are serving him in what we would call his cabinet positions. He's bringing in the uh, Department of Defense and bringing in the military heads and the generals and everyone, and he is moving from um, a position of of a covert attack on David to where he is coming out of the closet, as he were, and telling uh, all of his staff that they need to kill David to do whatever whatever it takes. Now we're reminded that uh, Saul has tried to um, 
killed David three times prior to this, as shown in chapter 18. In chapter 18, verse 11, there was a situation where David came into play for Saul as he was being uh, tormented by this evil spirit, and twice he were told that David had to dodge a spear that, that Saul threw at him in order to uh, kill him. And then the third attempt on David's life was a much more covert attempt where he was going to uh, betroth David to his daughter, Michelle, and said, okay, the dowry is going to be a hundred uh, foreskins from Philistines, which means he has to go into battle. Sometime later in David's life, remember, he's going to be uh, caught uh, having adultery with the w- wife of one of his generals, Uriah the Hittite. And after um, uh, Bathsheba gets pregnant, David comes up with a scheme to do since she won't, um, uh, she does not have relations with Uriah, then um, because he's too honorable when he comes back on leave, then David has to get him out of the way. So he tells his general uh, Joab to put Uriah up in the heat of the battle. So David has this idea of using a battle scenario to kill Uriah. Maybe he got that idea from Saul. And Saul has that same idea here. We're going to put David in a battle scenario and let the Philistines uh, take care of the problem for me. And so that uh, failed because God was with David and God protected David. In fact, David doubled and killed 200 uh, Philistines and um, brought the dowry to, uh, to Saul. And here we're going to see the fourth attempt on David's life when he pulls the Jonathan together with the servants uh, and, or, and instructs them to kill. And it's possible that the word here for kill, which is your normal word for kill in this structure, structure according to several of the um, uh, Hebrew dictionaries, has the nuance of execute or assassinate. Uh, that that's the idea here. He wants David taken out. He wants them to uh, be his hit squad to take out David. But the problem is that Jonathan, as we saw back at the beginning of chapter 18, has become extremely close with David. They have become, uh, what's the term today, BFF. They have become very close. They are best friends, and they they think about the Lord. They think about doctrine. They are focused on God's plan for Israel. And so we're told there that Jonathan and David's souls were knit together, and Jonathan loved David as his own soul. And that in the context is the context of a covenant. Verse 3, they made a covenant together. We might relate that to some sort of Native American Indian uh, tribal practice of becoming blood brothers. So the language of love there, you always have liberals who come along and they try to read something homosexual into that, and that's just not acceptable because the language is in the context of a covenant, and that uh, even though ahav is used there, it means faithfulness and loyalty to this covenant uh, to one another. So David, I mean, Jonathan, we're told at the end of verse 1, delighted greatly in David. That means that he, uh, he liked him very much. They were very close. 
And so Jonathan takes this opportunity to protect David. Now, one of the things that we see going on here is a preparation of the readers and of the nation that when David finally comes to the throne, by knowing these facts, they come to understand that David wasn't going working behind the scenes to try to defeat Saul or to overthrow Saul or to harm Saul in any way. So that even though when we get into 2 Samuel, we'll see that the tribes are divided and that when David first becomes king, he's only the king of Judah and he reigns from Hebron in the south. And it is, it, it is some, uh, uh, some years before he unites all of the tribes. So the tribe of Benjamin, especially, which was Saul's tribe, is very suspicious of David. So the writer is making it clear that, that David is not doing anything uh, to ma- manipulate the situation, to take the throne away from Saul. And in fact, David is protected by Saul's own family, by Jonathan and then by his wife, uh, his wife Michelle. So Saul has instructed Jonathan to uh, to kill David, and <clears throat> Jonathan goes to uh, <clears throat> goes to David in order to uh, tell him what Saul's up to. Now, this is a situation where a legitimate authority gives an illegitimate command, and by illegitimate command, again, as I have emphasized, uh, when we have a an, a direct order or command or law that tells us to do something that God tells us not to do or tells us not to do something that God tells us to do, that is the only legitimate scenario for disobeying an authority, whether it is a parent, an employer, uh, whether it is a a president or a king or someone else in authority. And so this fits that situation. So when Jonathan is told by Saul to do something that... um, uh, violates the word, then you have to make a decision. And so he has a choice. He can either go along with it, and the scripture never says that you necessarily go along with it. So he can either uh, go along with it, or he can somehow create a scenario where he appeals to that authority. That's the same scenario as we have in Daniel chapter 1 when. Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are want to keep kosher, and so they go to the chief of the eunuchs, and Daniel appeals to him and says, let's do a trial basis here, and if we eat the way the law says to eat, you can test us at the end of a period of time to see who is doing better, uh, us or those who are eating according to your standard diet. So that's the same scenario we have here. There is an appeal uh, appeal to authority, and the authority is going to uh, is going to respond. So in verse uh, two, what we see is that Jonathan warns David, and he has a plan. He says, "My father seeks to kill you." That's the warning. And then he says, therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. The authorities are looking for you, but it's legitimate to hide because you haven't done anything wrong. So don't attack them. It's a passive response. Stay in a secret place 
and hide. And then he has a, uh, an additional solution. He says, I'm going to go out and stand beside my father in the field uh, where you are. So that way David could overhear the scenario. And I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, what I learn from that situation, I will tell you. So he's going to appeal uh, to Saul in that in that process. And then we read in verse 4, Thus uh, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. So now he goes to his father, and he ta- reminds him of everything that that David has done. David has never done anything to hurt you. David has never tried to take the kingdom from you. David was a great warrior who uh, uh, killed Goliath and gave a tremendous victory to Israel. So he makes a rational case to to Saul that he should not seek David's life. And that's covered in verses uh, 4 and 5. He said, Let not the king sin against his servant against David, because he has not sinned against you. Second, because his works have been very good toward you. First of all, he hasn't done anything against you. Second, everything he has done has benefited you. And then he gives examples in verse 5. He took uh, the life of and killed the Philistine. And second, because of his trust in the Lord, the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. Uh, you saw it, you rejoice. So he's tell, reminding him of what he knows from his own uh, personal experience. And then, then he asked the question, why do you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So he pins him with the issue. And the result is that Saul listens to him in verse 6 and swears an oath as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Now, I think at that moment, Saul was being honest, that he recognized that, that what Jonathan had to say was true, and but his character is behind this, and because he is in a carnal freefall, uh, it's not going to last very long. Uh, too often we see this kind of thing with some of our political leaders, and so we have to uh, take what they say with a grain of salt. The result is that John, Jonathan called to David and told him all of these things so that he was able to bring David to Saul and he was in his presence as in times past. So some time goes by now and everything is fine because of the way that Jonathan in wisdom has uh, approached the problem uh, of authority. But then uh, things flared up again with the Philistines, and every time there's something going on with the Philistines, and David is in a, a positive position, it always provokes this jealous rage, this anger on the part of Saul. So verse 8 tells us that war develops again, and David went out, fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. So again, he's going to be uh, praised by the people. Saul was not present. And so now the evil spirit, again, it's the same term we've seen before, this evil spirit that God permits to come upon Saul. And again, I want to emphasize the term here is not to go into Saul. It's not demon possession. It is an external influence to come upon Saul. And that's a phrase that we see primarily uh, also with the role of the Holy Spirit. We're going to get into the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament before we finish the chapter. 
but that is this external influence. And he, this evil spirit came upon Saul as he sat in the house, and he has his spear in his hand, and David is playing the harp again to to soothe his feelings, and we have David uh, with a little music therapy going on, and what happens is that Saul picks up his spear and tries to uh, kill David uh, one more time. So this is the fifth attack on David, uh, and in, <clears throat> and he uh, David flees and escaped uh, that night. So this was his attempt to pin David to the wall. Then in verse 11, we see the sixth attempt. This is the sixth attempt. So Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him. So he sends an assassination squad to kill David at his home. So David goes home, and he is with his wife, Michelle, and she warns him. So Jonathan has warned him and protected him, and now Michelle, Saul's daughter, is going to warn him and protect him and says, if you don't save your life tonight, then you're going to be killed tomorrow. So everybody understands that Saul is in this murderous rage again, and so he escapes that night, and in verse verse 12, he escapes out through the window. Now, the story goes on to say, in verse 13, that she took an image. Now, this image is a teraphim. It's an idol, and it's a household idol. What we see, once again, is that um, people in the Bible are too different from a lot of Christians today in that they still have a lot of superstitions. They still have a lot of uh, pagan ideas that they bring with them into their Christian life, and that always compromises our spirituality, and that's going to be a major problem for Michelle because she continues to have these pagan ideas, and she continues to uh, trust in the pagan religion, and this is going to cause uh, a breakdown in her marriage with David uh, and also a breakdown in her family. She's going to end up uh, completely... Uh, losing the opportunity to establish a family because, the, uh, according to Second Samuel, uh, chapter six, verse uh, verse twenty-three. So, when we read this in connection with Psalm fifty-nine, which we'll look at next time, uh, we will we see how David uses the faith rest drill uh, to trust God in the midst of this assault. So tonight we're just looking at the the episode, the narrative, the situation. The next time we'll look at the details of David's thinking as it's expressed in uh, Psalm Psalm 59, specifically in verses 9 through 10 and 16 through 17. So she uh, sets up this uh, decoy by putting this image in the bed, and she takes some goat's hair and puts it around the top so it looks like his head, covers him with clothes, and this, in the dark, is able to uh, fool those who are looking in through the, through the window. So David escapes at night, and this whole situation is somewhat reminiscent of previous situations in the history of Israel. We're told about uh, when Jacob... Is, has left Laban, and he sort of snuck away and then fled back from 
Haran up in northern Syria back down to the land. Laban is chasing him, and Laban says that he has stolen the household idols, which indicate uh, the person who has the inheritance rights, the possession rights. And so it was um, it was uh, Rachel who had taken these teraphim, Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, and she hid them under uh, in her saddlebags under her her robes and her skirt or whatever. And uh, so there was a, a she's deceiving her father, her father Laban, and lied to him about having the teraphim. We're also told of an event later on when we come to Moses, and Moses, as an infant, was put into the Nile uh, by his mother in a uh, basket of reeds, and then is is rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, who is who is a pagan, who is an unbeliever. So we see how another scenario where God's uh, chosen is rescued. Uh, by a woman. Jacob is saved from Laban by Rachel's lies, and Moses is saved by the Pharaoh's daughter, and then David is, I mean, uh, uh, the spies uh, who go into Jericho later on in Joshua, they're going to be saved by uh, Rahab the harlot. So uh, this this scenario of God's, uh, God's chosen people being rescued by a pagan woman is sort of thematic through uh, through through the scriptures, so then we come to the end of that particular episode, and then Saul realizes that David uh, is is uh, possibly gotten away from him. And in verse fourteen, we read that Saul sent messengers to take David. Uh, he thinks he's still there, but he's hiding. And she says she's going to cover up for him. Says, "Well, he's sick. He's sick in bed. You don't want to mess with him. He'll." Uh, uh, and then he sent his messengers back and says, bring him bed and all. Just pick up the bed and bring him to me. And so when they come in, they discover that it's the uh, idol that's in the in the bed between the sheets. And then they come back and the whole plot is exposed. And Saul confronts uh, his daughter, Michelle, in verse 17, about her deception. Why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he's escaped? And she answers again, she is appealing to him, but this is a little different appeal because she recognized that um, that that he's put Saul is uh, appears to be abusive to her, and she said, "Why should I kill you?" That, and the idea is that she would have to defend herself and and kill Saul. All of this just represents the family dynamics and showing how God is protecting David through Jonathan and Michelle. Now we're going to get to the third way in which God protects David, and this is through uh, the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and it is a unique situation that is occurring here in, um, in, in Samuel. So David fled in verse 18 and escaped and went to Samuel, who is back in his hometown of Ramah, and this is only... Um, you know, if he's been he's been in Gibeah and he's going to Ramah, this is only at about two or three miles away. And he goes to Ramah and tells tells uh, Samuel everything that's been going on. And they stayed at a place called Nioth. And Nioth is not really a village; it is more of a term that means uh, in the dwellings or inhabitation. So they're hiding out with the people who lived in the village. They're not in Samuel's. Uh, in Samuel's home. 
but eventually reports uh, reach David and uh, he he's identifies where, I mean get to Saul and he identifies where David is and so he sends out some of his troops to take David and there's three of these things that happen here the first one's described in verse 20 when they uh, when they they came to take David and David and Samuel are with a group of prophets and the text says that when they that is the messengers the hit team seized a group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, then the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul. Now, this isn't indwelling. He doesn't go into them. It comes upon them. It's that same preposition. Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Now, what in the world is going on there? And when Saul was told that his hit team is now prophesying with the prophets, he sent other messengers. And he sends the second hit team. And when the second hit team gets there, the same thing happens. They also uh, prophesy. They're also prophesying with the prophets. And again, what in the world is happening here when it talks about this kind of uh, this kind of prophecy. Well, I'm one page short in my notes. That's always good. When the prophesying in, with the prophets, and then verse 21, we see a third team that's sent, and the same thing happens. So and then Saul goes to Ramah, and comes to the great well that is at Sechu. So this this locates it in a geographical location. This was a large cistern that would have supplied water for the entire area that was well known. So just pointing out that the biblical text always locates these things in specific places that are discoverable and were at least known by the people at the time of, of writing uh, as... Um, uh, Joel Kramer points out, because of his background deal in, as a pastor in uh, Utah dealing with Mormons, and he's written several uh, or produced a, a tremendous video on Mormonism and the Bible, he points out that in, uh, you can go to Israel and you can find the locations of almost every place mentioned in the Bible. But you can't go anywhere and find any place that's mentioned in the Book of Mormon. The Bible is written in, a, in history and in a specific geographical location, and so you can go to those places, and the Bible tells you exactly how to get to those places. So it goes by this uh, cistern there at Sehu, and he's asking for directions as to where Samuel and David are, and they told him uh, down in the uh, suburbs there at Nioth. And so he goes there, and the Spirit of God is upon him, and he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner. So here's this picture of Saul who strips down butt naked and lays down and prophesies. Anybody have any ideas what's going on here? 
I told you this is an extremely strange situation. He strips off his clothes, prophesied before Samuel in like manner, and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Now, one of the problems that we get into here is that it is typical of of liberals who do not believe in the historical accuracy of the Scripture or that there is really divine revelation or that God is, is really doing anything in space-time history. And so when they look at this, they look at this in terms of of what the pagan religions are doing. And they interpret this as some sort of ecstasy, some sort of ecstatics. And this is what happens in pagan worship is that through the use of various things from, from hallucinogenic drugs to music to dancing, the worshipers work themselves up into some sort of trance and they will pass out and sometimes they would speak in glossolalic utterance, and other times they'll have visions. This would happen, for example, with the American Aboriginal Indian tribes, that they would use various uh, different hallucinogenic drugs in order to get um, uh, in order to get into some sort of trance-like state, and then they would have their their various uh, uh, visions, and they would see their their spirit. Uh, guides would would appear to them, and this was also a way in which they would would uh, celebrate uh, someone 's entrance into manhood or a great victory or some great event in the life of the tribe. When I first got out of college and I was teaching and running an in school suspension class down in channel view my um, i 've mentioned him before my my boss was the counselor who oversaw the program, and he was a uh, rather rotund red headed ruddy Irishman by the name of Gene O'Quinn, but his mother was Quanta Parker's uh, youngest daughter, and Quanta Parker was the last war chief of the uh, of the Comanche Indians, who were quite a warlike tribe. And um, if you want to read a good book on them, you can read the book Empire of the Summer Moon, and it's the story of the Comanche specifically that period because Quanta Parker's mother was a young Anglo girl who was kidnapped by the Comanches uh, somewhere up towards East Texas, up near the area around uh, Buffalo today, just east of there, over around Mahaya in that area. And the, the Parker clan had moved down there from uh, somewhere back east and begun to settle uh, in the 18... Uh, 30s and 1840s, and the Comanches attacked, and they killed a number and tortured a number, and they kidnapped a couple of the women, including Cynthia Ann, and um, took took back. And so she basically grew up as a Comanche. She was brought and and, and brought back uh, when she was uh, an adult many many years later, and she never quite adjusted to uh, white culture. But her son was Quanta Parker. And uh, Gene told me one time that if you look in the history books and you see pictures of Quanta Parker, said, look real closely. There's only one set of series of pictures that was ever taken of him. And as the chief, he was the first one to get the peyote button and chew it and get the uh, richest uh, hallucinogenic drugs out of it. 
and he his eyes are all glazed over and he's as high as a kite so next time you see something about him you'll you'll take another another look at him and so I, every time I've seen pictures of him, I've always stopped to take a look at that. But that's a little uh, unknown fact that only a family member would, would know. So this is what happened in, in your pagan religions, is they have their pagan modus operandi for getting in touch with the gods or goddesses, which, as the Scripture says, are, are, are demons. And so often what happens is liberals go to those patterns and say, see, that's the same thing that's going on here. And when you read this particular passage, it, it, it seems that, that, well, they may have a case. Now, there's a tremendous Old Testament scholar by the name of Leon Wood, who was a previous generation, but when I was in seminary, we read a number of his works. He had a commentary on judges. He had a survey of Old Testament history. He wrote a tremendous book on the um, uh, Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, a number of other, other books. And in his book on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, he said, liberal scholars commonly view these instances as examples of ecstatic frenzy on the part of the participants. They understand the references to the spirit to be merely indications of an emotional surge in the individual's own personalities as they experience these occurrences. Conservative scholars normally disagree with this explanation, but they have little to say in terms of an explanation. So usually what you read in the commentaries, as I looked at some of the more scholarly commentaries today, uh, and all but one of them just sort of skipped over this, and the one who did just takes the ecstatic view. But ecstatics and ecstasy is the MO of paganism, not the Spirit of God. So what is going on here? Well, I think contextually what we're seeing is that the Holy Spirit is doing something to protect David. Number two, he is... Uh, protecting uh, David by taking these hit teams out of operation so that um, uh, David can can survive and they're just completely distracted. And then when Saul shows up, he is going to do something that takes David completely out. Now, I don't know all the dynamics that are going on here, but I do know that there's one element to this that... uh, is little known when we talk about uh, uh, the scripture and we talk about this concept of prophecy. And in 1 Chronicles 25, verses 1 through 3, we have one of the most significant statements about this. In 1 Chronicles 25, 1, we read, Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service some of the sons of Asaph. Now, who was Asaph? Asaph was one of the Levitical priests who wrote many psalms, and he is a choir director or the music director. He's a musician who is organizing the Levitical orchestras and the Levitical priests for worship in the, in the temple. So they mentioned the sons of Asaph, that would be one, one group, the sons of Heman and of Jeduthun, who should prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals. 
Now, we normally think of prophecy in terms of one of its nuances, and that is the idea that prophecy is forthtelling. It is the prophet's role was to represent God to the people. The prophet's role often was that he served as the uh, sort of God's attorney general who would prosecute the nation Israel for violating uh, the terms of the Mosaic Covenant. And so we think of a prophet in that sense. We think, therefore, that a prophet was involved in, in direct revelation from God, as, he, as they were, in order to bring this message of, of judgment and condemnation against the nation, and that later on you also had some that were writing prophets who wrote uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. We think of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. These were, uh, these were the writing prophets. But there's another group that was involved in, in music. And we also see, see this evidence when we think about uh, a couple of women in the Old Testament who were significant. You have Miriam, the sister of Moses, who was called a prophetess. And we have Deborah, who's also called a prophetess. But in both of those cases, we have these women who wrote uh, chapter-length hymns uh, celebrating and praising God for giving them victory. So they're called prophetesses. We have no evidence whatsoever of them functioning uh, in the other sense of a prophet, but we do have evidence in Scripture where they functioned in terms of writing uh, music under divine inspiration. So First uh, Chronicles 25.1 says this, that these these three clans of musicians, the sons of Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun, would prophesy with harps, with stringed instruments, and cymbals. And the number of the skilled men performing their service was. And then it lists them in the next couple of verses. In First Chronicles 25, 2, it, it identifies the sons of, of Asaph. And after listing the sons of Asaph, it says that these are those who prophesied according to the order of the king. So that's the second time it says that these musicians prophesied. And then we get to verse 3, and we get the sons of Jeduthun, and it lists the sons of Jeduthun, six under the direction of their father Jeduthun, who prophesied with a harp to give thanks and to praise the Lord. So we see three times in these three verses a statement that prophecy was done with a musical instrument. So that, that emphasizes, uh, there's a lot of things that we could talk about uh, in relation to music. I've done studies on that a couple of times back in the our study of, of Revelation, and you can go back and listen to those, but that is very important. So we see this having to do with this distinctive role of God the Holy Spirit, and I thought I would just remind you of a couple of things uh, in relation to the Holy Spirit. Now, back around lessons uh, 40, 41, 42, I went through a detailed study of the role of God the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and I just wanted to re review that because I want to remind you of that quote from uh, Leon Wood again, that the approach of liberals, and I would say this also relates to neo-evangelicals and some scholars 
uh, on the fringe of the conservative movement today, and I really mean that on the fringe, where they begin to take the Holy Spirit as some sort of influence, not as a person, not as but but as sort of an influence of God. And so I just want to review a few things, skip through some slides, look at the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit, usually when we think of the Holy Spirit, we think of the Holy Spirit in the more refined uh, ministry that's explained in the Gospels and in the Epistles. Uh, In the Gospels, we hear about the promise that in the future Jesus would baptize by means of the Holy Spirit. In John uh, chapter 14, uh, 15 and 16, specifically, Jesus is telling the disciples that he's going to send another comforter who's going to guide them, direct them, and bring to their memory the events in his life so that they can write them down uh, down in Scripture. Later on in the epistles, we're told about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the leading of the Holy Spirit, and all of this is related to very distinct types of ministries in the church age. But the Holy Spirit has always been involved in giving guidance and direction, and that's through the Scripture. It's not mystical. It is objective. God, the Holy Spirit, we may not understand the process. It may be mysterious in that we don't can't explain it or we don't know how it worked uh, in, in detail. But the scripture said, I mean, the, the, uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God. Just as you exhale, if you take a balloon and you fill your lungs with air and you breathe out, that breath that comes out of your lungs goes into the balloon. And that's the picture here in uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen is as that God exhales that information fills the mind of the writer of Scripture, and then he writes what God has him write. It's not dictation. It is a, a, a in, unique, and in, in the term inspiration really is sort of a misnomer. It is God breathing. The mechanics of that are described in Second Peter 1, uh, 20 and 21. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. In other words, the writers didn't interpret this or invent this on their own. For prophecy never came by the will of man. It wasn't their will that generated it. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And the verb that's used there for describing movement is the same verb that describes wind blowing on the sails of a sailing ship to move it across the ocean. It's an unseen force that is felt uh, by the sail. So, so the writers don't see it. They can't quantify it. But nevertheless, it is that ministry of the Holy Spirit that is moving them as they write Scripture. Further, second point, the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity who's mentioned in Scripture from the very beginning of the Old Testament. And there's clear statements in the prophets, for example, in Isaiah and Jeremiah, where there are conversations between Yahweh and his Spirit, indicating that if there's communication and conversation, that it's not he's not just talking to himself, he is talking to a second person. But the first time we see the Holy Spirit mentioned is in Genesis uh, 1-2. 1-1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that starts us off there. 
Then the second verse describes the earth, and I believe that something transpired between one one and one two that is where I put the fall of Satan and a judgment upon the earth that left it formless and dark, and the Spirit of God is bringing life back to the planet, hovering. The picture here is of a bird uh, hovering over the eggs, warming the eggs, incubating the eggs in the nest, uh, in preparation for life, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the Spirit of God has a specific role in ministry from the very beginning of Scripture. This isn't something that gets invented by Christians in, in the New Testament. There are other passages in the Old Testament that talk about this creation. In Psalm 104.30, the psalmist says, You send forth your spirit. They are created And you renew the face of the earth. That, I believe, is referencing or alluding to Genesis 1-2. Job mentions the Spirit a couple of times in Job 26-13. By his Spirit, he adorned the heavens. And then he says, his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. We'll discuss that, but that's probably an allusion to Satan uh, through, through the use of the Holy Spirit. Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me. So we see the uh, presence in the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, in creation of life, every single uh, human life. And so there's a number of places to talk about the identity of the Holy Spirit as a separate person and who has all the attributes of personhood and all the attributes of deity. For example, the Holy Spirit is linked equally with the Father and the Son in the passage known as the Great Commission, Matthew twenty-eight nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Second uh, Corinthians thirteen fourteen. In the close of that epistle, uh, the Apostle Paul says, "The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's the Son, and the love of God, that is God the Father." And the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So again, the Holy Spirit is seen as equal with the Father and the Son. You see aspects of his personhood and his will in Acts 16.7 that he did not permit Paul to go to certain areas of Turkey on his uh, second missionary journey. And 1 Corinthians 12:11, that the same Spirit distributes to each one spiritual gifts individually as he wills. So he has his own volition. Uh, we look at John 16, uh, 14, that he has specific responsibilities in the church age. He will uh, declare things to the disciples that they will write uh, in terms of the Scripture. And John fourteen twenty six, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things. I think that is talking about uh, this disciple specific. One of the great interpretive issues in going through John fourteen fifteen and sixteen is when Jesus is talking about something that is only true of the disciples, and something that is true of the disciples as they represent the entire church. But this can't, verse 26, can't relate to the entire church because you can't remember something you didn't initially witness or do. And so when he says uh, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things, he's telling them that he's, the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of everything I said, everything I taught, and everything that we did. 
because the disciples heard it, saw it, and witnessed it, but you and I didn't. So this isn't a verse that uh, he's not going to bring it to your memory because you weren't there to begin with. John fifteen twenty six. he will testify of me. And then we see passages that talk about uh, the ministry, the personal ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're to walk by means of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 16. Um, as they're making decisions uh, at the Jerusalem Council in Acts fifteen twenty eight, they say it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to make this decision. Then we also see passages like Romans eight eleven that talk that ascribe the works of deity to the Holy Spirit. That if that, but if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, so it's talking about His involvement in the resurrection of Jesus Christ in that verse. Okay, the third point is just a brief mention of the term ruach is the term that is used. Uh, for spirit, sometimes it refers to thinking, sometimes it refers to breath, sometimes it refers to wind, and we see like its counterpart in the New Testament, lots of different meanings. Uh, breeze, breath, wind, air, something vain or futile, empty breath. Uh, third, the breath of God, which supports life. Uh, Genesis six seventeen. sometimes it refers to the human spirit, that immaterial part of man, whether believer or unbeliever. Uh, sometimes it refers to the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Yahweh, and that some of them also are somewhat a- ambiguous. Fourth point is that God, it's God's Spirit, his, the uh, third person of the Trinity, not his influence, not his breath, but a distinct person who is said to have had a special relationship with mankind prior to the flood. Now, Genesis 6-3 is one of those verses that is often misunderstood. In most translations, it reads like the verse I have on the screen, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Now, this comes at the end of the... um, uh, of the dispensation of human conscience, as it's talked about just prior to the flood that destroys all mankind. The whole world changes. And I believe that what happens is God has his garden, which is the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sin, they get kicked out, and God set, sets up a battalion of cherubs around the garden to keep any human beings from coming in and corrupting the garden. And I believe God's presence, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, stayed on the earth during that time before the flood. Now, this word that's translated strive is a word that is used only one time in all of of um, in all of the Old Testament. Whenever you have a word that's only used one time, it's often difficult to... Uh, define it and figure out what it means. The word is the Hebrew word yadon, and recently I purchased a new uh, partial set. The whole set hasn't been finished yet, but it's the first seven volumes called the Classical Dictionary of Hebrew, which is the latest, greatest uh, Hebrew lexicon. And in that lexicon, they define it as I have always believed it should be defined 
as remain or abide. It's not my spirit will not strive with man forever. It should be translated, my spirit will not abide with man forever. Now, all of your related Semitic languages have that root in them, and they all have that idea of remain and abide. And I remember when I was uh, taking a word study course with Al Ross at Dallas Seminary, um, he was on the translation team for the New International Version. And that translation team, you you don't know how these things work, but on that way they did that, they would have committees. And the committees would be assigned a long passage. They would translate them, each individual on the committee. They would come together and debate their translations. And then uh, they would vote on which one should be the translation. Then if they disagreed or not, it was to be bumped up to a higher committee and a higher committee. And I remember us doing a word study on this particular word. And Al said, you know, when we did Genesis, I wanted to put a footnote in the margin of the NIV that strive was the meaning by a vote of five to four. That's how it works in translation. So the idea here is that that God was still present. Remember, national human government and national entities hadn't been instituted yet. So who's the highest court of appeal in human history? It's the court of God going to the Garden of Eden, and I believe that the Holy Spirit then functioned in ways he did later on in the theocratic kingdom to provide guidance, leadership, and direction, just as he does in all of the different uh, dispensations. The next time we see the use of the word is Pharaoh is talking, and Pharaoh says regarding Joseph, um, can we find such a one as this, a man in whom is the Spirit of God? Now, some people think that, that Pharaoh is saying, that, and he is teaching the truth, and, and Joseph is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If so, there's only one other verse that uses the preposition in for the role of the Holy Spirit. Dr. Walvoord, president of Dallas Seminary, theologian, his book on the Holy Spirit takes it this way. Uh, we don't have time now. I'm not going to go through the whole quote. But he takes it that Pharaoh is not mistaken, that he is indwelt. The problem is that when he starts looking at further, he says, further operations to this, further references, the same operation of the Spirit are not difficult to find. Trouble is, they don't use the same vocabulary. They don't say the same thing. And so he uh, goes to passages like Ezekiel 28, 3, and Numbers eleven seventeen. 17, um, And these passages use different terms, like the Spirit of God coming upon someone. And I thought it was interesting that Numbers 11.17 says, I will come down and talk with you there, talk God speaking to Moses. I will take of the Spirit that is upon you, that's the Hebrew word al, upon you, and I will put the same upon them. Yeah, the same preposition used here in Numbers 5.14, if the spirit of jealousy, that's a mental attitude sin, comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, this is just a phenomenological language that they used in various um, uh, various places. Um, now, the only other place that you have in used in the Old Testament is with Joshua, who I think is a distinct situation where Moses is told to take Joshua, the son of Nun. That means Joseph didn't have any parents. He's the only person in the Bible in Adam who didn't have any parents. He's the son of Nun. 
Take Joshua, the son of Nun, with you, a man in whom is the Spirit. In whom? That's the only other time you have that in preposition used. So possibly, but it's not an indwelling like what we have in the New Testament. Usually you have language, he's full of the Spirit of Wisdom, and almost all the translations, Tanakh, the Jewish Publication Society, all look at this as it's an idiom for skill. It's not talking about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So what you see in the, is this, this external ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he is working in this situation in Nioth to protect David. And so it's a, a unique and bizarre situation. I wish I could explain it a little more, but we just don't have enough information. So that wraps up. Uh, chapter 19 next time what i want to do is come back and look at the psalm psalm 59 that comes out of this to understand the spiritual mechanics of how you handle a personal opposition father thank you for this opportunity to study the word this evening and uh, be encouraged by what we've seen that you as you protected david for his mission you protect each and every one of us. We're sealed by the Spirit, so we have an eternally secure salvation. But in terms of our mission, you are watching over us and protecting us in the same way you did David. That doesn't mean there wasn't opposition or hostility, but that it wasn't successful. Father, we pray that we can learn to trust you and trust you consistently as David did, that we might walk in a relaxed manner in this life, not worried, not uh, panicky, not fearful, not giving in to anxiety, but trusting you in all things. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.